I'm Chris Sims. And I'm Franco Terrazano. This is the Canadian Taxpayers Podcast. We're dedicated to lower taxes, less waste, and more accountable government. In Deep Dive, we're going to take a look at the taxpayer costs associated with the COVID-19 pandemic and the terrible economic shutdown that came with it. And in Waste Watch, hold on to your seats. We're going to check in with our Quebec director about a crazy rental car expense, but you really need to hear it to believe how much money one politician managed to spend on renting a car. But first, let's check in with Franco. Hey, you've got a solid Canadian Taxpayers Federation victory out there in Calgary. That's right. We did get a solid victory for taxpayers in Calgary. And that's because Calgary City Council voted to put an end to the mayor's second pension. And that's right, Chris, you heard me. The mayor of Calgary (laughs) is eligible for not one, but two pensions. And it turns out Calgary was the only major Canadian city to offer its mayor two pensions. And this second pension was completely taxpayer funded and on top of an already lucrative defined benefit plan. Now, considering that Calgarians have been struggling over the last five years with job losses and pay cuts, and that most workers outside of government don't even have a workplace pension, yeah, it's pretty clear that ending the mayor's second pension was a necessary first step. Just saying that out loud, mayor's second pension, like it sounds like a bad comedy. But not only is this going to save Calgarians money, I think it really needs to be stressed that this victory was led completely by the Canadian Taxpayers Federation and our supporters. Oh, that's correct. It was our previous Alberta director, Colin Craig, who was great at ruffling feathers over councillors' benefits at Calgary City Hall. I mean, he even got under the skin of the mayor so badly that Mayor Nenshi took a run at him on Twitter. (laughs) The, The mayor was implying that Colin was, quote, lying and misleading. But don't worry, Colin was firing some shots too, and he said the mayor was, quote, hair splitting. But at the end of the day, it was Colin who discovered the mayor's second pension, and there was no denying that Mayor Nenshi was eligible to receive two pensions. Now, the CTF, yeah, wow, indeed. And it was a CTF who also discovered that Calgary was the only major Canadian city to have this golden perk, and we put up a big billboard in Calgary thanks to the help of our supporters. Now, I can't stress this enough, but our supporters, our Calgary taxpayers, really deserve a lot of credit here. Because for the last few years, our supporters have been absolutely blasting councillors' inboxes about the need to scale back the crazy benefits at City Hall. Yeah, kudos to them, man. This is a big win for Calgary taxpayers. And it shows the power of citizens actually pushing back against politicians to do the right thing. But, you know, this victory is also important for all Canadian taxpayers, really. Uh, We have a huge deficit across the country, and a big portion of government costs are because of bureaucrats' pay and benefits. Now, we need to see politicians willing to share in the tough time and take a cut, but we also need to see the bureaucrats able to take a cut. It's good to see Calgary councillors start to move in the right direction. Here in Vancouver, council temporarily reduced salaries by 10% due to covid Although city managers managed to give themselves a 4% salary increase during COVID. You win some, you lose some. Well, Chris, I think you're uh, bang on when you say that we need to see our government employees, our politicians and our bureaucrats willing to share in the tough times and, and help shoulder the burden. And on that, I want to play a clip for you. Today, I can confirm that myself, government ministers and public service chief executives will take a 20% pay cut for the next six months. As we acknowledge New Zealanders who are reliant on wage subsidies, 
taking pay cuts and losing their jobs as a result of COVID-19's global pandemic. Yeah, that was New Zealand's Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern announcing that she, along with top bureaucrats in New Zealand, are taking a 20% cut to help show struggling taxpayers that they're willing to share in the tough times. Now, here in Canada, there's nowhere governments are going to be able to balance the books and pay down the big-time debt without taking some air out of our ballooning government labor costs. And that's why the Canadian Taxpayers Federation is calling on the feds to take a 15 and 15 approach to government labor costs, reduce the workforce by 15%, and reduce the remaining salaries by 15%. Exactly, because it cannot be the struggling taxpayers who are outside of government doing all the heavy lifting here. So many workers outside of the government have either lost their jobs or taken big pay cuts this entire year, but we haven't seen government share in those tough times yet. Were we really all in this together? Stay tuned. We're going to have a lot more to say about government labor costs. And we're also going to include links in the show notes to a CTF report on Calgary Council's golden benefits and a link to an interview that Colin Craig had on the mayor's second pension. Stay with us. This is Deep Dive, the part of the show where we dive deeper into important issues of the day. Today, we're going to be talking about the sheer cost of COVID-19 in Canada, the debts our politicians have been racking up, and what that means for taxpayers. Joining me to discuss this topic is Aaron Woodrick, our federal director. Aaron, you recently wrote a piece published in the Financial Post saying that our federal finance minister, Christia Freeland, had some good news for us. Now, I haven't heard good news coming out of Ottawa about finances for years. So what could she possibly be talking about? Yeah, it was a little bit strange, Jasmine. I mean, uh, it's not the sort of uh, tone of a speech given the circumstances we're in. It was her sort of maiden big speech as finance minister. So maybe that's why she was laying it on pretty thick. But boy, according to her speech, she says that we're, we have nothing to worry about. There's not going to be any, any negative consequences uh, for all this spending that we're racking up right now. Is that a bit of uh, sarcasm I detect? There might be a little, but that that essentially was the thrust of her speech. It was that, you know, we, we don't have to worry. There is no problem. It's under control. Even though, you know, you, you take one little stat, we're at the point now where for a family of four in this country, their share of the federal, federal debt is about $100,000. There's so much that's really troubling about what you just said that I want to unpack it. In fact, I'd really like to use this segment of our podcast today to dissect some of the government's really flawed reasoning that's underlying and excusing all of this spending. So Aaron, let's debunk some of the myths that they've been peddling one by one. First, the government claims that we're in a good financial position and that we were going into this crisis in a good financial position. Is that true? Yeah, to get to that answer, you have to do some very fine cherry picking. And the government likes to use what they call the debt to GDP ratio, which is the amount of debt relative to the size of the economy. And they say we have the best debt to GDP ratio in the G7. But the problem is that, you know, to get that number, Jasmine, you have to ignore all the provincial debt. And we're a federal country. Provinces take on a a large share of the debt in this country. So you're really cutting out a big chunk of the debt that should be counted to get to that number. And if you add it back in, it actually suggests that we have one of the highest debt loads. In fact, just, just behind Japan and France, we're among the highest in the G20. So in other words, it's a myth that Canada was in great shape compared to other industrialized countries. But Aaron, this is nothing new because in your article, you called out the government for being a poor financial manager before the crisis even started. 
Yeah, look, this is a government that they sound ridiculous when they say they've been good uh, fiscal managers when they did not hit any of their own promises, right? This isn't a group like us being hardline. They said they would balance the budget. They put out a bunch of numbers. They missed them all miserably. They piled up more than $100 billion in debt while the economy was growing. They did not balance the budget, even though they promised to. So it's pretty clear from their own track record, this is a government that had a spending problem well before COVID ever hit us. That's why here at the Taxpayers Federation, we were really skeptical when the government said that maintaining the, a certain debt to GDP ratio would be their fiscal anchor, as they did briefly before abandoning targets altogether. And just to be clear for our listeners, when we say GDP, we're referring to the gross domestic product, which basically is a measure of all the economic activity in the country. And we're skeptical because during economic crises, the GDP can plunge outside of government's control. The only thing that governments really can control leading into these situations is the amount of debt that they take on. So Aaron, how has this flagship measure, the debt to GDP ratio, how has it changed for the federal government during COVID-19? Yeah, it has not been good. It has jumped dramatically. So it was just over 30% uh, in 2019. It was 31%. Now it's almost at 50%. So 49%. You know, that, for example, that means that it would take every single dollar generating the economy for six months to, to pay off our debt. And that's a 60% leap in one year. So it's, it's, a, it's a huge jump for, for just one year alone. So there you have it, folks. Another economic myth out of Ottawa has been officially debunked, and that is that Canada is not in a good debt position relative to our peers. But let's move on to the next myth underlying Ottawa's current spending spree, which is that because interest rates are low, the government can spend whatever it wants with impunity. Aaron, walk us through the obvious problems with this logic. Well, it's a bit like saying if you have a good run at the casino that it's uh, it's a sound strategy to just continue gambling and you'll never lose. I mean, the there is an immediate cost to this debt in the form of interest payments. Yes, it's lower than it might otherwise be, but there's still a cost. And to give people, again, a sense of the size, even with low interest rates, it's still almost $20 billion a year. That's almost as much as we send, spend on the military. And that's just on interest that we don't actually get anything else in return for, for those tax dollars. Well, to play the devil's advocate here, even though Canada has more debt this year, the cost of our interest payments will actually decline by about 20% compared to 2019. So last year, because interest rates are currently low. So Aaron, what do you say to that? Well, again, to use the casino example, if you get on a hot streak, it doesn't mean you're going to have the same kind of luck the next night. And it's a mistake to confuse your good luck for a strategy. Interest rates go up and down. You know, they, they are at a historic low now, but that only suggests that at some point they're going to go up. And, uh, you know, the opposition critic Pierre Polliver noted that the vast majority of our new debt, 91% of it, is short term. That's up for renewal in under five years. So that's very vulnerable to changes in interest rates. And even a small increase can have a big impact on the bottom line. Just a 1% increase would mean about $10 billion more in interest. So it is, it is a huge change in dollar figures just for, just for a slight change in the percentage of the interest. And aside from the immediate cost, which is interest payments, there's a much bigger kind of elephant in the room. And that bigger cost is repaying the actual debt itself. So Aaron, how much will the actual debt cost us? 
Yeah. I mean, it's the distinction between the balance on your credit card and the interest you have to pay monthly, right? And at some point, even if you pay off all the interest you owe, you still have to make headway against that principle. And uh, it's going to be almost a trillion dollars this year. You know, we added uh, at least 340 billion, could be 400 billion by the time the year is out. That's as much debt as we, it took us 22 years to add that much debt previously. So just to give you a sense of the size of the, of the amount that we're piling up. And this is money that has to be paid back. So it means either spending is going to have to go down or taxes are going to have to go up either on, on, on our generation or future generations. So there is definitely a cost to this spending. It's, it's only a question of how much. Okay. So there we have it. Another myth from Ottawa has been debunked as you clearly have demonstrated. The fact that interest rates are low does not mean that the government can spend without painful consequences now and in the future. Let's move on to a third myth, Aaron. And I think this one is the most important idea to debunk. It goes something like this. All of the spending that the federal government is doing right now is necessary. Let's listen to a clip from Finance Minister Freeland. The upshot is that we are living today in a world where the risks of fiscal inaction outweigh the risks of fiscal action. Doing too little is more dangerous and potentially more costly than doing too much. So Aaron, what is wrong with what the minister is saying here? Well, the minister's setting up a, a false binary. She's saying that there's only two options on the table. We can spend everything or we can spend nothing. And what kind of cold-hearted person wants to spend nothing? And I think uh, what, what the reality is, is that, yes, we're in a unique situation and the government's going to have to spend on, on some things we didn't expect. But there are many other low priority things that are not as essential that, that uh, we can afford to cut back on. And we need to look at doing that in order to, to make the bill smaller so we're not racking up insane amounts of debt for future generations. You really hit the nail on the head there. Not all of what the federal government is spending has been related to COVID-19 or is even helpful for an economic recovery. And Trudeau is adding nearly a billion dollars to the debt every single day. So Aaron, can you give us some examples to really demonstrate why taxpayers should be skeptical when the government says that their spending will improve the economy? Well, you, all you have to do is look at their past track record. I think that's a fair way to judge how governments will behave in the future is to look how they behaved in the past. And if you look at the Trudeau governments, that there's some alarm bells there. I mean, first of all, they can't provide any paperwork for about 20,000 different infrastructure projects. So that's a lot of projects where there's no paper trail and no evidence of the return on investment. They've got a program called the Innovation Superclusters Program. It promised to create a whole bunch of jobs and, and, and draw in all this investment. Did not hit any of their targets for that either. And then one of my favorites or least favorites actually is something called the Strategic Innovation Fund. It's basically a corporate welfare slush fund. They promised 56,000 jobs created for $2.3 billion in spending. They created 11,000. So not even a quarter of the return that they promised. So this is just a few examples of how they failed in the past and should really, you know, should, should really raise some red flags about their odds of succeeding going forward. And, you know, even looking at some of the, the big pick, big ticket measurements, you know, in terms of the, we have the highest deficit as a share of GDP compared to any other country in the G20. And yet we have still have the highest unemployment rate in the G7. So we're spending more and getting less that's a serious problem. I've heard a lot of economists compare government spending to drinking in that 
you know, it's fun at the time, it's carefree now, but that it really hurts tomorrow. And it sounds like the Trudeau government has been pretty indulgent in its spending and that taxpayers are going to be stuck with a bad hangover. It's time for Waste Watch, and that's when we make fun of the dumb things that governments are spending our tax dollars on. Renault, what do you got for us today? Well, I have a question for, for you, Franco. The last time you rented a car, how much did you pay for it? Okay, I just was in Edmonton at the end of August, and I spent, I think, about 70 bucks for a day trip. But we're talking about government spending our money, and if there's one thing that governments are good at, it's <laughs> spending our money. So I'm going to guess on the expensive side and say about 150 bucks. 150 bucks? Are you crazy? Oh, no, you're totally lowballing it. We found out, thanks to an access to information request, that Investissement Quebec CEO Guy Leblanc billed taxpayers for $1,546.75 to rent a car for one day trip between Montreal and Quebec City. Sorry, did I just hear you say they spent 1500 bucks on a one-day car rental? Yeah, yeah, you, you heard that right. Wow, that's a lot of dough. You know, I probably shouldn't tell, tell everyone this, but I actually bought a car two years ago, a Chevy Aveo, for the same price. <laughs> but actually, it actually cost me less than $1,500. <laughs> oh my goodness, that's a lot of money. So I, I need to know, what kind of car do they get for 1500 bucks a day in a rental? Well, that's the thing. We don't know. We can guess it's probably not a Chevy Aveo, but we don't know exactly what he, what he got for that, for that amount of money. So the reason why is we found this out through an access to information request that asked for this guy's expense reports as well as his receipts. But it turns out that Quebec's access to information law considers receipts to be personal information. So we cannot know the make and model of the car he rented. The only thing we know is how much he paid for it and how many days he rented it for. Nevertheless, you know, we decided we'd go above and beyond and look into it because I was curious too for, uh, about what kind of car you can get for 1500 bucks a day. So here's what you can get. You can either rent one Lamborghini Huracan or two Ferrari Californians or 17 BMW X5s or a little bit closer to your price range, 26 Chevrolet Sparks. You know, I think you could probably also get 1,500 Chevy Aveos for 1,500 bucks a day. <laughs> oh man, this is crazy. This is crazy. I mean, in all seriousness though, how, how can you possibly justify spending enough taxpayers' money on a car rental that you could rent not one, but two Ferraris? Well, here's the kicker. I have a small Quebec claims that this might actually have saved taxpayers' money. Now, I for one couldn't figure out how this, this could possibly save taxpayers' money. But here's what they wrote back. It said that this car could transport three executives and one person from another firm so that they could chat on confidential topics and work during the trip. Now, I don't know about you, but I want to find out what kind of meeting needs to happen in a $1,500 rental that can't happen in a $70 rental. Oh, sounds uh, super serious. Oh, oh definitely. Um, I'm sure the value of the rental has an, an impact on how confidential it can be. But they, they also made another point, which to their credit, that's a little bit more of a fair point. They say they save money on hotel bills because they didn't have to stay the night. Look, the most luxurious hotel in Quebec City is the Chateau Frontenac. It's that, it's, it's that heavily photographed Fairmount Hotel. The place is absolutely, absolutely gorgeous. It's five stars. And I checked, renting four rooms there would have been significantly cheaper in that car. 
would have only cost a thousand bucks to rent four rooms. That car costs fifteen hundred. And like, come on, are these bureaucrats hoping that we're gonna give them kudos for not staying at the Fairmont? <laughs> like, we should <laughs> we should get these bureaucrats' office address so taxpayers can send them a nice sarcastic thank you note. I mean, it's it's a good thing they're not staying at the Fairmont, right? But come on, they couldn't have found a cheaper rental. Oh, they should have. And I, I don't know why they didn't. Like, that's absolutely crazy. But what's scary about this story is that this guy, Guy Leblanc, he's in charge of overseeing a $4.6 billion taxpayer-funded corporate welfare fund. And if we can't even trust him to show good judgment with his expense account, how are we supposed to trust him to manage $4.6 bucks in taxpayers' money? Well, I mean, that's one of the key issues against corporate welfare. And I mean, one of the key issues with government as well is that you're, you're always going to be more frivolous if you're spending other people's money. But like, here's the thing. If you're in a position where you have to bill some of the stuff to the taxpayers, you, you better be extra careful about what you're spending the money on. And you better be making sure that you're getting the best value for taxpayers' money. But getting the best value for taxpayers' money seems to be the furthest thing from this bureaucrat's mind. Well, Renault, thanks for keeping an eye out for taxpayers out there in Quebec. And, and for our listeners, if you, if you want to read more about this story, don't worry. We're going to include the links in the show notes. All right. That's the show. We hope you enjoyed. And we got to give a huge thanks to our investigative journalist and our podcast editor, James Wood, because he, uh, yeah, he makes it sound like we actually know what we're talking about. It's a miracle. It really is. And thank you all so much for listening. And remember, if you have some buddies who you know are hopping mad about government waste, Send them the link to this podcast and remember to subscribe. Catch you next week. Hi, I'm Scott Hennig, president of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. If you've got another minute, I'd like to ask you to think about the one person you know that would really enjoy listening to this podcast. Do us a favor and do them a favor and send them a quick note to let them know about it. At the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, we believe there is power in numbers. That's why we've worked so hard to build an army of taxpayers who are ready to push back. And we did it because people like you shared our work with that one person that they knew would really appreciate taking part. Thanks for listening, and thanks for doing your part to make Canada a better place.